Hi, I'm Max Bergman. And I'm Donatien Rui. And this is The Europhile, a podcast where we look at Europe through a Washington lens. Welcome to another episode of The Europhile. We have a great show for you today. We are going to talk about the rise of the far right, what it means for Europe. We will start by looking at Italy, following Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's recent visit to Washington. Then we will turn to Germany, where AFD, the far right party, has continued to perform well in polls ahead of next year's European parliamentary elections. And finally, today, we will turn to a conversation with Charles Powell, director of the Madrid-based Elcano Royal Institute, for a conversation about the recent Spanish elections and its implications for European politics. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, let's get started on this always cheerful topic, which is the rise and fall and rise again of the far right in Europe. This is a dynamic we saw a lot after the financial crisis in 2008-2009. There was a big wave of far-right parties in Europe, and then especially around the migration crisis in 2015-2016. And then for a little bit, it felt like maybe there was a pause or the wave had receded. But now we're really seeing a comeback of some of the parties, uh, far-right parties across Europe, including in very big, very important member states in the European Union. And we're going to talk about Italy first, because Prime Minister Giorgia Meloni of the Brothers of Italy, which is a far-right party in Italy, visited Washington, D.C. on July 27. So talk to us about what the meeting looked like. Well, first, maybe I'll start by by talking about, is this a trend? It, you know, are we, is Europe in a new place of panic? You know, is the EU on the on the verge of collapsing because we're going to have far-right parties that are about to ascend and, and, and be in governments all across Europe, and then they're going to, you know, join forces to, to collapse the European Union? There's this perpetual kind of Europe's on the verge of catastrophe narrative that particularly comes through in a lot of American, I think, writing and analysis of Europe. Because we turn to Europe, you know, when it gets into the New York Times, it's because, my God, there's this far right leader coming to the United States. And we've talked a lot about the rise of European political parties. We've talked a lot about the far right and in European political elections on this podcast. I tend to think that this is sort of, I wouldn't say a false trend. I think what you're seeing is that you have a combination of things happening across Europe where far-right parties emerged during a period of immense crisis in the previous decade, uh, fueled by migration, economic decline, distrust of elites, all the populist trends that gave rise to populism here in the United States as well. And then what you've seen is a combination of factors where uh, many of these far-right parties have, you know, really kind of normalize themselves in some ways have shifted uh, in certain respects and in, in some respects uh, others. And I think this is something, you know, I see your face and I can, we can, we can which have a discussion. Which translates well for a podcast. Yeah. So which yeah. translates well for a podcast, hence I had to articulate it. Uh, but, but I think you see certain trends emerging that don't, really look like to me that there that this is like the new 2014-15. And what I mean by that, so look, look at Sweden for for example. And then we'll we'll turn to Italy. Sweden had an election a while ago. The far right Swedish Democrats that have neo-Nazi roots, they've, you know, got more 20%. They were the second largest party behind the Social Democrats. And yet the the when you put the coalition of parties together on the right, it was clear that the only way for the right to actually form a government was through the tacit support of the Swedish Democrats. 
But when you look at that election, what was that election really about? It was about immigration and crime. So when you start having elections about things that the far right does well on that are authentic, they're going to get a good portion of the vote. And so maybe to turn to Italy, there's been a lot of talk about Giorgia Maloney. There's a, a really, I think, interesting op-ed in New York Times about why Maloney's rise is so scary. But in other respects, what Maloney has done since becoming into power is to kind of act as a normal center-right politician on most issues. And then this is where I think it's where this does sort of pose a real challenge on the social issues, issues that are really kind of very much domestic. When you talk about the birth rate in Italy, uh, how migrants are treated there, she has has sort of walked the talk of being, uh, I think, in many, many respects, a far right politician. But when it comes to the EU, when it comes to NATO, she has been probably much more, much more aligned uh, and and a better partner, at least on the European level, than I think many had had expected. And so, hence, she's come to Washington and has been sort of treated as a normal European prime minister that has come, that has been very pro-Atlanticist. Uh, and then, you know, I think the the welcoming that she sort of got. Italy also announced they were going to withdraw from the Belt and Road Initiative. They had signed up under the previous uh, one of the previous governments uh, of Giuseppe Conte, not the last one, but the one before. <laughs> 47 uh, ones yeah, before. Yeah. Uh, Italy has lots of governments. And... And I think that's sort of a good sign, you know, here in Washington that, you know, she is, has has adopted kind of a, a more center-right approach, at least when it comes to the foreign policy and relations with Europe, which is something that Washington, I think, cares about. Yeah, I think both things are true at once, that a lot of these parties, when they come into power, have to reckon with the reality in front of them, which is things need to get done in the country services and still need to be delivered. There's a set of alliances that's a dealt that's a hand that they're already dealt when they come into power. All the very disruptive ideas that they had on a campaign trail, they I think they realize, okay, maybe some of this is just not doable. So we'll quietly forget that we said that we would do this during the campaign. So that that can be true. And we've seen several of these parties moderate their positions on certain things. Just a side note on this, it's really interesting that she's the first female prime minister in Italy because I feel like in a lot of countries, the first woman oftentimes has to be a conservative one yeah. because that's how you make it less um, threatening, to be perfectly honest, because it's not a big change in platform and in the figure head of the government. I mean, Margaret Thatcher was the same thing. That's one part. The other part is there's still, and you mentioned this, there's still a lot of policy issues that are now... Some of it depends, obviously, on your political orientation, but that remained particularly concerning around how they approach democracy and the functioning between the different branches, things like LGBTQ rights and migrants and how they treat certain aspects of society. I think that's hugely concerning when you see in Italy the fact that they want to actually take away one of the same-sex parents on birth certificates for children who have already been born. They want to go back and annul some of these birth certificates. I mean, it just, it, there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm, when I look at these trends, I'm worried that because some of the policies we find to be fairly normal in the end, we're going to sweep this under the rug at the same time that the U.S. is on this big push to support democracy in the world, etc. I just worry that we're going to make the same mistake over and over again by treating some of these governments as normal governments. Not that we have a ton of room to make comments about domestic policies, but that's something that I think we should all, especially as 
analysts and observers, the picture needs to be clear and exhaustive on the range of policies that are being enacted, not just the ones that we think align on foreign policy. And on BRI, on the Belt and Road Initiative, sure, I mean, it's it's a big deal because Italy was the main, basically, like Western European state to join the initiative. It's also been kind of defunct yeah. for the last few years. The relationship with China has really changed, even though it was a really big deal that Italy was showcasing that kind of close relationship with China. So it's a good thing overall. But I also don't want to overstate how much of an effort it requires from them. I, I don't disagree with any of your points. I, I think that the question, I think, really for the U.S. policy and for Europe is that, you know, where is this line between domestic politics and sort of the the foreign policy of a country? In Europe, it gets totally blurred because, you know, European countries are, you know, their foreign policy is done not only in Washington, but in Brussels. But on the other hand, their domestic policy is also done in Brussels. Look, I, I think a lot of what uh, Georgia Maloney does does not allow line with with where I would stand, you know, on on many of these political issues. But there's a certain point where it is does, I think, become a domestic political issue. I also think that when we look at the kind of rise of of her and the far right, what also happened was the collapse of the center right party. And and actually, she did very well in the last election, but not as well as I think that her opponents, you know, worried going into the actual election day that she was going to get a majority to be able to uh, change the constitution. That did not happen. And in fact, part of what happened in the Italian election is that the left just fractured, that the, the center left party, the Democratic Party, decided not to form a counter coalition to the right coalition that Maloney had established with Berlusconi and uh, Matteo Salvini. And so you just kind of had one intact coalition and then one kind of mess on the other side. And I think the presumption on the left was that well, if Maloney wins, it's going to be a poison chalice. She's not going to be able to govern. And what she's sort of demonstrated is through this culture war politics, she can keep her right flank secure as she sort of pivots to the center. The larger question here is like, are is the culture war stuff going to really now start to animate European politics? And by culture war stuff, I mean gay rights issues. Migration has been this kind of consistent issue. And what I think that migration sort of tends to is that Europe hasn't been an integrative society in the way that the United States has been. And so this is creating a lot of cultural challenges. And then Italy, you have to remember, it's probably one of the oldest countries in the world. So you have this aging population, old people vote that don't like all the change that they're seeing. I'm not sure how much Italy is going to chart the course for the rest of Europe. We sort of saw that in Spain in an election that we'll, we're going to talk about more, uh, where the far right party, after everyone having to grapple, do we really want to have a far right party uh, govern? The answer was largely no. Mm -hmm. But this leads to the question about Germany, where the AFD, the far right party, has sort of emerged uh, in the polls again. Now is the second largest party, according to polling, after the CDU. So the three parties in government are like tanking. <laughs> what do you think is going on here in Germany? I find that really interesting because I feel like across other countries in Europe, when we've seen, because the AFD has been around a little while now. We've talked about it before. And I feel like a lot of the times when we see a new, newish far-right party emerge, there's a wave and then it goes away, probably under the weight of its own incompetence or it tried to govern and then didn't work. I find it really interesting this time that this seems to be a comeback for the AFD. And the fact that it's polling around 20% ahead of 
the party of the chancellor. That's fascinating to me, also because it hasn't softened softened its message at all. It continues to be a seriously Eurosceptic party when we know that in Germany there's a general consensus around being fairly pro-European, although you and I have discussed a lot of aspects that are less so. Things around like, denying climate change, uh, honestly remaining fairly pro-Russian. So I think it's it's interesting that they get a second wave. I'd be curious to dig into more detail on whether that's connected to the energy prices or inflation on the war uh, and what kind of discussions that creates in Germany, the efforts that are being asked of people around climate and adaptation. But I'd also like to see a, a detailed map. My guess is the support once again comes more from the east of the country, which is what happened last time as well. A lot of economically depressed areas, because that's usually where the message resonates. But this is a party, though, that maintains that it will refuse to soften its platform to get a broader coalition. So it can do well in the polls, but no one's going to want to govern with them. So I don't know how yeah. you manage something like this, except just create more gridlock. Well, Frederick Mertz, the leader of the CDU, uh, made a lot of headlines uh, earlier this month when he said, well, they're, the AFD is sort of a fact of life, so we're going to have to think about governing with them. And that lead, led to a big blowback within his party, and he sort of walked it back. Very quickly. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I think what you'll hear later in the show, uh, in the conversation with Charles Powell and talking about the Spanish elections, he sort of identifies that, look, center-right parties are going to have a, have a real problem where they have this sort of now hard right flank and how do they work with them? Because really to put together governing coalitions, you kind of need to govern with the right. And this is what we see, you know, the left, I think has this benefit where the far left parties are in some ways not seen as sort of outside of the mainstream and are seen as less threatening. So they're able to kind of put together these coalitions. I think when it comes to Germany, I think there's some reasons for real concern. I think the AFD's sort of longevity here. I think the fact that the kind of nature of German politics right now, where it's sort of hard to see where the CDU really goes. And so there's going to be this kind of real lane for the AFD. On the other hand, we have to remember Schultz won the you know, got the most votes was a, a stunning performance by the SPD, and he kind of came out of nowhere. He basically increased by ten percent. So we're seeing more fluctuation within German German politics. The thing I would say also is the current German coalition with three of the four mainstream parties. They all kind of undermine each other, where the SPD is is sort of liking that it's sort of governing from the center or seeing seemingly seen from the center. While the FDP, the Free Democrats, are, you know, really kind of a, a conservative party against spending, which is then really inhibiting the Greens from actually implementing their agenda. And they're, you know, opposing a lot of the Green agenda. The And Schultz just sort of looks like he's mediating between this coalition. Well, and in those situations, you can't show your citizens and your electorate, here's what it looks like when we get elected. Yeah. Because it's similar to gridlock in Congress. Like, there's no clear majority, so it's hard to make those moves. But I feel like the problem with a lot of center-right parties across Europe is because now they've kind of taken a bite at the poison apple on things like culture wars, it's very hard to walk back and then make a clear distinction between them and the far-right parties that are coming on their heels. On the left, I mean, we've seen some completely crumble and shatter the coalition that could be the real opposition. But in Germany, the I think the real problem compared to, let's say, Italy, where 
Giorgia Maloney coming into government maybe defangs Brothers of Italy a little bit. In Germany, this is a neo-Nazi party in Germany that has very concerning positions, including on the European Union, for a member state that is so crucial to any of the reforms that you and I have talked about a lot on this podcast that need to happen for the future, the enlargement of Europe, for defense, for security, all of these things. So that's, I think there's like an extra problem. I, I do think that one of the major factors here is that there there's a lot to be disgruntled with with the existing German government, whether you're on the left or the right, right? So within the left, you can be like, my God, they're not doing what they actually promised. They're constrained by the FDP. Schultz isn't being a strong enough leader. And then on the right, you can be like, well, my God, they're pursuing all this sort of, you know, environmentalist agenda. Robert Habeck is the, you know, energy and, and economy minister, and they want to get rid of my gas boiler. So there's all this, you know, negativity that can go around that coalition, both inside of it and then outside of it. I think the major problem is the CDU is also just not in a good place because essentially Schultz, I think, and others can rightly point to that the CDU is responsible for a lot of the problems. It's bet on energy. It's bet on Russia. It's its policies toward China, all these issues. And so the CDU is struggling to actually be the opposition. This should be that kind of major moment for the CDU to just be like, well, we're obviously going to come back in the government. And they're, you know, the largest party, but not by that much. And so I think this has just given an ability for uh, the AFD to kind of ascend and given it a real lane. And we'll see what happens. Will Mertz be the leader? You know, there's uh, elections are still lots of time. Yeah, before the kind of national elections. I think a concern is the AFD keeps doing well at these kind of local regional elections. So I think, look, the rise of the far right, there is a concern. The AFD is sort of the most unrepentant, I think, of many of these parties. However, it does seem to me that we may be slightly overstating it. What we're kind of seeing is this difficulty on the center-right right of figuring out where the balance is there and the kind of dislocation that happened in the previous decade of, of parties splitting up and new parties emerging. It's kind of coming home to roost. What's interesting about the Spanish election, and this is a good segue to Charles Powell, is that this is sort of the reemergence of the, the main traditional parties. And there's some interesting reasons for that uh, that, that we'll get to in that conversation. I am thrilled to be joined by the director of the Madrid-based Elcano Royal Institute, Charles Powell, for a conversation about the recent Spanish elections and its implications for European politics. Charles has been director of Elcano since 2012 and a professor of contemporary history at CEU San Pablo University since 2001. And he's an expert on political history of contemporary Spain, both domestic and foreign. And I really couldn't think of any better guest to have to break down the recent Spanish elections and what this means for Europe going forward and for Spain. Charles, welcome to the Eurofile. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here, Max. Maybe just give us an overview of what actually happened in the election. In the lead up, there was lots of talk in the European press, and it even, I think, penetrated the American press, that we were looking at kind of this new far-right wave that was about to take over Spain, and it didn't seem to materialize. That's right, yes. I think that's the big surprise for some people. To be honest, though, we at the Institute had predicted that this would more or less happen. Remember, all of this started because there was a, a local and a regional election back in May, and the uh, ruling Socialist Party did very poorly. So the Prime Minister, Pedro Sánchez, who is obviously a gambler and a risk taker, made a very risky decision, which has completely paid off. 
which was to bring the elections forward. These elections should have taken place in December. He brought them forward to the 23rd of July, a controversial date because it was in the middle of the summer. Spain had never had a summer election. And basically what these elections have uh, revealed are two or three things. First of all, that Spain is divided into two blocks, a right-wing block and a, and a left-wing block. And we now basically have a four-party system which seems to be consolidating to some extent. So the two biggest parties won 33% and 31% of the vote, and the two other two parties won 12% of the vote each. Yes, as you say, the, the narrative about Vox, the far-right party, forming part of a coalition government led by the, popular, the conservative popular party simply hasn't materialized. Their percentage of the vote has dropped from 15 to 12%. And I think actually this points to something deeper, which is the fact that the Spanish electorate is fundamentally moderate and centrist. Now, I want to sort of maybe go back to Sanchez's decision to call this election, mm -hmm. because I remember the kind of day after the what is essentially the Spanish sort of midterm election, if we were going to kind of compare it to the United States, it's as if you're, you know, in 2010, Barack Obama gets shellacked and then <laughs> announces that he's going to suddenly have a presidential election uh, six weeks later, in like the middle of the Christmas season. I think everyone, you know, that can't happen in American politics, but would have been like, that's a crazy decision. You just got hammered in the local and regional elections. What was the thought process? And maybe you could walk us through what happened in those local and regional elections and then why six weeks later, roughly six weeks later or a few months later, uh, it, it, the, the electorate sort of swung back. Well, in real terms, the swing to the right wasn't all that um, big. You know, it was it was less um, spectacular than than we might think. But basically, what happened was that the Socialist Party did very badly in regions where it had traditionally done well. This wasn't entirely surprising. Sanchez has been in office since twenty twenty, the early part of the year, and as he has pointed out during the election campaign, he's had to deal with COVID first, and then the consequences of the war in Ukraine. So this has been a difficult period for all of us. Nevertheless, the Spanish economy is doing well. The IMF has just predicted that it'll grow 2.5% this year, which is the highest growth level in the EU. So I think what he felt was basically, first of all, that if he hung on until December, he would become a bit of a lame duck and that his authority within the party might be contested. And secondly, and most importantly, Sanchez has done something really quite remarkable. It's a, a feat of political engineering, I would say. He has essentially created a party to his left, which did not exist, right? Mm -hmm. So to his left, there was a party called Podemos, but this party was bedeviled by infighting and it was basically imploding. So instead of relying on them to complete his majority in parliament, he essentially encouraged the creation of a new movement, which is called Sumar, led by his deputy prime minister. So by calling early elections, he essentially forced the entire left of the spectrum, left of the Socialist Party, to get their act together in a matter of weeks, which otherwise they would never have done. They would have been bickering right until the bitter end, right until the eve of the December election. Instead of that, they had to basically appoint candidates overnight. So he reordered the entire left of the political spectrum in his own image. And this means that if he is able to form a government, which I think he will, he will con completely dominate the party that is to his left. And therefore, the next coalition government is likely to be much more stable than the previous one. This may be a, a rather base, basic question, but how did he do that? I mean, when Podemos just decided, OK, we're just going to rebrand or was everyone sort of bought in inside of the Podemos party that that this isn't working and we have to sort of go in a new direction? 
Well, that's a very important question because, in fact, the leader of Sumar essentially vetoed the most popular figure in Podemos, Irene Montero, who was the Minister for Equality. Why was she able to do this? Because Irene Montero was basically responsible for the most controversial piece of legislation adopted during these three years, which was a law on gender violence. This law was flawed, and as a result of the implementation of this law, about a thousand sex offenders saw their sentences reduced and about 300 of them were actually released. So this caused outrage among the feminist movement in particular, who therefore uh, were quite happy to see Irene Montero leaving the stage. So basically, yeah, it was a pretty ruthless process. He essentially encouraged his deputy prime minister, Yolanda Diaz, to restructure the whole of, of that part of the spectrum. And it wasn't easy. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad blood and some leaders have suffered the consequences of that. But by and large, the outcome has been extremely positive for them. So let's maybe go to the results of the election. It appears from the outside very inconclusive. So we had the, the center-right party with the largest vote share and Sanchez and, and Pessoa, the Socialist Party, having increased. But no one can form a, a government right now. So what's the – it feels like a, a stasis. Is there going to be another election? How does this get resolved? Okay. So basically the popular party, the center-right popular party, won 33 percent of the vote, which was less – slightly less than people had been predicting. A lot of the polls were pointing to 35%. So not such a big difference, in fact. The big surprise was that the socialists did better than had been expected, and that Vox, the far-right party, did worse. So in the first instance, the new parliament will convene on the 17th of August. His Majesty the King, this is a parliamentary monarchy, will invite the leader of the largest party, in other words, Alberto Núñez Feijó, to try to form a government. And he has announced that he will do his best to try to form a government, but we all know that this is going to be impossible. Quite simply because the Popular Party, the center-right conservatives, only have one viable partner, and that is Vox. And together they don't add up. They don't have sufficient MPs. So the king will then turn to Pedro Sánchez, the leader of the second largest party, and will ask him to try to form a government. What Sánchez will try to do is to re-edit the situation that he currently has. In other words, he will try to form a coalition government, this time with Sumad instead of Podemos, and he will try to win the support of a plethora of basically smaller Catalan, Basque and Galician regional parties. The key at the moment is whether he will be able to convince one Catalan nationalist separatist party to abstain. Mm -hmm. So everything hinges on the seven members of parliament that this Catalan separatist nationalist party has won. I'm pretty confident that Sanchez can do this. Remember, he, he only needs their abstention. He doesn't actually need their favorable uh, vote because people are saying, what can he possibly give them that would encourage them to abstain? To my mind, he doesn't actually have to offer that much, among other reasons, because the leader of this party is currently in exile in Belgium. You may remember he fled Spain after the illegal referendum in October uh, 2017, and he's been in exile in Belgium ever since. So basically, he has a pretty rough life as it is. And I'm pretty confident that he is going to be willing to abstain if he is given certain guarantees about the future. Some people are worried that this would involve the promise of a referendum on national self-determination in Catalonia. This is something the prime minister is not going to offer for the simple reason that it's unconstitutional. So he can't offer that. If this fails, despite what I'm saying, if this party, Junts per Catalunya, refuse to abstain, we would then go for an early election, 
which would be held in early 2024. But I think that's very unlikely right now. So maybe you could talk about just the regional dimension here a, a bit, because I think that that may be sort of not familiar to many of our listeners that why is the the center right not able to try to appeal to any of the the more uh, regional parties in either Catalonia or or the Basque country? That's a very important question. Essentially, it's because historically Spanish conservatism has been reluctant to accept a semi-federal territorial structure. The Popular Party has accepted this and is itself a federal party consisting of 17 different parties which are present throughout Spain. The problem, though, is that in recent years, especially because of the Catalan crisis in 2017, the Popular Party became very belligerent and very hostile towards really any form of peripheral nationalism, be it in Catalonia, the Basque Country, Galicia, and elsewhere. So that hasn't made them popular in, in these uh, two regions. And in fact, the key to this election is that the socialists in Catalonia did extremely well in that region. They actually won more votes than the secessionist parties. So from a systemic point of view, this is very good news. It means that secessionism is really not on the agenda at all. And it means that a nationwide party, the Spanish Socialist Party, is the largest party in that particular region. So the conservatives, as you were saying, they, they have a problem with uh, Catalan and Basque nationalism. They are seen as a party which is essentially hostile to Catalan and Basque identity. This isn't necessarily the case, but by associating with Vox, which is brutally hostile to Catalan and Basque nationalism, and even hostile to the whole uh, semi-federal structure, they were tarnished even more than would have been the case uh, beforehand. And why is a grand coalition not sort of in the cards as we've seen in Germany between the, the you know, CDU, the center-right conservatives, and the SPD, the main center-left party? Why is that something that is just not being well, discussed? Some people simplistically say this is a legacy of the Civil War, you know, the, the two Spains, the conflict between um, these two ideological blocks. I wouldn't be so deterministic. I, you know, one cannot rule out that at some point in the future this might happen. But it's simply, I think, um, it reflects you know, the evolution of Spanish political culture during the last 40 years. I'm not actually sure that it would be a good thing, actually, because then the alternative to this grand coalition would be the two radical parties on, on the far right and the far left. So I think we would probably, be, we would probably see an, an emptying out of the center ground and a strengthening of the two radical parties if a grand coalition were to occur. So nobody has ever really advocated that seriously. Some people who are nostalgic about the, the two-party system that used to exist in the 80s and the 90s often mention this possibility, but it, it, it's not realistic. It's not going to happen. And to be honest, as I've said, I'm not sure that it would be such a great thing. And what does this mean for uh, Spain's presidency of the European Union, which is, you know, currently Spain holds the presidency? Is having an election in the middle of a presidency, I mean, the French did it, the Swedes sort of did it, they had it right before. Is this causing turmoil or did the election results sort of mean there'll be sort of a stasis throughout it? I think basically it, it means the latter. So people were worried, obviously, that having an election campaign right at the beginning of the six-month presidency, which started on the 1st of July, would interrupt the whole process. My take is that basically Sanchez again was very clever in calling this election in July and not in September, for example, which means that he can now concentrate on the presidency of the council during the next uh, three, four months. 
August is always a quiet month in terms of um, EU politics. Whether or not he has a new, he's able to form a new government immediately. His will be the acting government. Uh, all of the summits and meetings that have been planned will take place as as originally envisaged. Civil servants have been preparing this for two years. This is the fifth Spanish presidency of the council. Uh, the Spanish administrative machine is highly effective, well-oiled, and I think it's going to be a very successful presidency all around. Lastly, maybe we could talk a little bit about what this means for wider Europe. There was a lot of talk of the far right being ascendant. Uh, George Maloney's here in Washington this week, for instance. In Sweden, the far right Swedish Democrats um, got over 20%. The Finns party in, in Finland, Marie Le Pen in France doing quite well in the polls, uh, as well as the AFD in Germany, and this sort of sense that the far right was gaining steam. But this seems to really run against that narrative. What do you think this sort of pretends for wider trajectories of European politics? I think the real issue at stake here is that the fundamental dilemma is that center-right mainstream conservative parties in Europe have a big problem. Right? And that is that they, they've seen the rise of this populist, these populist far-right movements, some of which are in office uh, in Poland and Hungary in particular and in Italy. So they have a dilemma. Do we compete with them or do we embrace them? And of course, if you embrace them, that has consequences for your own electorate. We've seen in Germany in the last few days, the CDU has been toying with the idea of forming coalitions at the regional level with AFD uh, candidates. So I think what most European popular party leaders will take away from the Spanish election is that that is toxic. That is playing with fire. They should stick to their identity. They should defend their values, the old values of European mainstream center-right Christian democratic parties. Um, because if they try to compete with the, the populist far-right, they will be contaminated by them. So I think this is actually quite a salutary message for mainstream European conservative parties. Charles, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to thank you so much for, for joining me on the Eurofile. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode. In classic European fashion, we'll be going on a short hiatus and we'll be back at the end of the month. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in more analysis on the Spanish elections, please check out the Europe Russia Eurasia program's website on CSIS.org. You'll find links to this work in the episode description as well. You might also be interested in our sister podcast, Russian Roulette, which covers the latest on Vladimir Putin's Russia and the ongoing war in Ukraine. As always, our thanks to our producer, Michael Kohler, and to Sarah Strindberg and Otto Svensson for coordinating and researching this episode. We'll be back soon with another assessment of Europe through a Washington lens. Until next time.